What you are listening to is the song of the Kauai O'o, a small bird found only on the Hawaiian island of Kauai. This recording was made in 1987 by the ornithologist David Boynton. It's a male, and it's expecting a reply from a female. But no reply ever came, because this male may in fact have been the very last of his species. This was the last time any trace was ever found of a live Kauai O'o. You're listening to The Extinction Files. Dan Jocelyn, and this is the first episode of a new podcast I'm calling The Extinction Files. In every episode, we plan to tell the story, to the best of our ability, of one extinct animal. By that, I don't mean the dinosaurs or the trilobites, though they are fascinating in their own right. I mean living beings that lived alongside humans, and in many cases had their extinctions caused by humans. Scientists say that we are in the midst of what some call the Holocene extinction, the sixth great extinction in the history of our planet. In the past 500 years, at least a thousand species that we know of have disappeared forever. And that doesn't take into account the thousands of species that likely went extinct before scientists had a chance to discover them. This podcast is an attempt to help preserve and spread the memories of some of these species. This podcast is an attempt to help preserve and spread the memories of some of these species. Hopefully by looking at what went wrong in these cases, we can learn what we need to avoid in the future. But what I really want to make sure is that this isn't just an exercise in blame or wallowing. Uh, A big part of the reason I want to do this podcast is that I find these animals genuinely fascinating. They're like creatures from a fantasy world that doesn't exist, except it was real, and it did exist. To me, real animals that really did exist are far more fascinating than fantastical creatures like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. Depending on when a particular species went extinct, we may have photographs of it or, or video. Some animals have been extinct for hundreds of years, but their mounted skins can still be seen in museums. They're like myths that aren't actually mythical. The thing is, we don't pause very often to consider that our ancestors lived in a fundamentally different world. Not only did they not have computers or cars, they also lived in climates that, for better or worse, were different than ours. For example, it's apparent from climatological studies that large areas of what is now the barren Sahara Desert were once grassy savannas populated by gazelles, lions, elephants, etc. And if we hadn't gotten that from scientific data, we would know it from the rock paintings of the people that lived there. People who drew pictures of giraffes on the walls of caves hundreds of miles, even thousands of miles from where the nearest giraffe can be found today. 
I'm not just talking about your typical cavemen, either. I'm talking about, you know, real history that we have records of. Hannibal crossed the Alps with elephants that came from the Middle East. The pillows of the rich nobility in medieval England were stuffed with the down of the Great Auk. At the time of Jane Austen, it wasn't unusual for meat to be turned on a spit while cooking by a tiny dog running on what we would think of as a hamster wheel. Uh, The breed of dog that they used for that no longer exists. In early 18th century America, one of the primary foods eaten by the poor was the passenger pigeon. None of those animals exist today. And while there are people around the world working diligently to save today's endangered species, there will be animals today that will be nothing more than stories to the children of this generation. And in this podcast, we'd like to help pass down those stories. Hopefully we'll also get the chance, as time goes on, to talk about some animals that were thought to be extinct and then came back from the dead, so to speak. In science, these are called Lazarus taxa. Now, this has happened before, and you never know when it'll happen again. We might even make it happen ourselves. There has already been one clone of an extinct animal born, a Pyrenean ibex. Unfortunately, it only lived for about four minutes, but research in this area is ongoing, so maybe your grandkids will have a pet woolly mammoth. Now, a common theme you'll hear on our show is that many of these extinct animals were endemic to islands. Now, endemic is a term you'll hear that means an animal lived in a certain place and nowhere else. There are several reasons why island ecologies are particularly vulnerable to extinction. For one thing, the areas in question just aren't very big, and so there likely weren't that many of a particular species to begin with. Perhaps more importantly, islands are, by definition, cut off from the rest of the world, which means that the Darwinian rules of survival of the fittest don't apply in quite the same way. Instead of competing against the entire animal kingdom, Those species that, through whatever means, can make it to isolated islands only have to compete against each other. On many islands, such as New Zealand, many of the ecological niches were filled by birds. Birds that could fly there, and birds which did not have to deal with large land-based mammalian predators. Similarly, the most ancient group of mammals, the marsupials, hung on in places like Australia and in isolated areas of South America far longer than the rest of the world. In Madagascar, an early primate evolved into dozens of species of lemur, and in particularly isolated patches, like Darwin's Galapagos or the Mascarenes in the Indian Ocean, ungainly giant tortoises somehow managed to rule the land like a second coming of the dinosaurs. The problem with this is that in modern times, islands aren't nearly as isolated. Man brings animals on purpose, like cats or grazing animals, or he brings animals without meaning to, like rats. Animals on isolated islands are also not nearly as resistant to outside diseases or to natural disasters. They are specialists. And when you're a specialist, it is easier to become obsolete. A prime example of these problems 
is the fauna of the Hawaiian Islands. And uh, that's uh, what we're going to focus on for the rest of this uh, first episode. Not only are these islands small and isolated, their relationship with the climate means there are actually many different types of habitat within each island, which breaks the endemic populations down into even smaller, more specialized groups. Prior to the appearance of humans, there was only one native terrestrial mammal species in the Hawaiian Islands, and that's a kind of bat, which is not surprising because that could fly there like the birds. The Polynesians colonized Hawaii around 300 CE, bringing a few outside animal species with them, such as dogs. They actually raised dogs to eat the way we would raise chickens or things like that. Uh, they also hunted the native bird life and used the colorful feathers of the exotic birds to decorate themselves. Um, and that's a tradition that continued into modern times. Uh, bones found in caves show that the Hawaiian Islands once had a much more diverse array of bird life than they did when the Europeans arrived. So there must have been a whole wave of extinctions caused by this first contact, so to speak, with humans. For example, there were giant ducks on the Hawaiian Islands, um, and those were called moanalos. But uh, they were likely hunted for food by the natives until they disappeared. The first Europeans to visit Hawaii were the crew of Captain Cook in 1778. Uh, and with those Europeans came many other waves of invaders, ranging in size all the way down to the microscopic level. Rats stowed away on ships, and then mongooses were introduced in order to control the rats, which, suffice to say, was not an idea that worked out very well. Then the islands ended up with both mongooses and rats. Humans brought agriculture, and the forest homes of many birds were cleared to make room for farms and ranches. As a place that existed into historical times without a human presence, the Hawaiian Islands were among the least equipped places on Earth to deal with changes like this. One group of birds that really did not deal well with this transition was a unique family of birds in Hawaii called the O'O's. That's O apostrophe O. The O'O's existed nowhere else except for Hawaii, with each of the major islands having its own species. Now, there's still controversy today about where they fit in taxonomical terms. They're sometimes referred to as honey eaters, though they don't seem to actually be genetically related to other birds around the world called honey eaters. And what is certain is that they are unlike any other birds anywhere else in the world, and that while there were once several species of O'O in Hawaii, every single one of those species is now thought to be extinct. O'O's were generally small, with long curved beaks. Their plumage was usually a variation on glossy black, and they had bright highlights in yellow or white on the underside of their wings. Several of the species had these weird yellow tufts on their wings that almost look like cheerleaders' pom-poms. They're really interesting. And uh, they primarily fed on nectar. And they lived in these dense mountainous forests. And uh, that's the destruction of that habitat is a big reason why their decline was so steep. The, the O'O's were still plentiful when Europeans arrived, and even though they were hunted a great deal by the Polynesians, and the reason for that was because the Polynesians would capture them 
and carefully pluck out a few of their longer feathers and then release them. And the feathers of the O'o were used by the natives to decorate the robes, capes, and staffs that were used by the Hawaiian nobility, their kings. And as late as 1898, hunters were still able to kill a hundred O'o's in one hunting trip on the big island of Hawaii. And even today, uh, one of the main volcanoes on the big island is called Pu'o'o. And that actually can be translated from Hawaiian as the Hill of the O'o Bird. However, the O'o's proved vulnerable not only to hunting, but also to diseases for which they had no immunity. It is thought that what finally doomed the birds may have at least partly been avian malaria transmitted by mosquitoes. Uh, and brought by introduced bird populations. Because the birds lived in dense forests and declined so rapidly, not that much else is known about them other than what I've already discussed. By the time the famous English ornithologist John Gould scientifically described and named the Oa'u O'o in 1865, it may already have been extinct for 30 years. In... Other, less densely populated islands, the O'o's hung on longer, but those species also eventually succumbed to pressures like deforestation, introduced rats, the habitat destruction by cattle and goats, and disease. The last known refuge of the O'o was the small western island of Kauai, where the local species was known by the locals as, and I'm not making this up, the O'o'a'a, which translates roughly as the Dwarf O'o. Now, the main thing people knew about them was their songs, which were duets between males and females. For example, no one knows exactly when or how they made it, because only one nest was ever found in the wild, so we can't really see any trends from it. Um, as of 1890, though, they were still thought to be relatively common but there was a steep population decline in the early years of the 20th century. In fact, the Kauai O'o was twice declared extinct in the mid-20th century, only to later eventually be rediscovered. What is known is by the 1970s, the bird's entire range was contained within the Alakai Wilderness Preserve, and that's a forested bog on a high plateau that is one of the very rainiest places on Earth. It's often shrouded in clouds, and that makes it very hard for even those intrepid humans who penetrate its depths to see small birds up in trees. And in 1973, the population of the O'o was estimated at 36 individuals, and that year the bird was officially protected in the U.S. by the passage of the Endangered Species Act. But... Despite that, by 1981, a survey of the Alakai found only a single nesting pair. And after Hurricane Iwa hit the island of Kauai the following year, only the male of that pair could be found. He was last seen up in the trees in 1985, and in 1987, the recording you heard at the beginning of this podcast was made of the male's distinctive song. And Today, surveys of Alakai continue, but none have found any O'o's since that 1987 recording. 
the birds have been thought to be gone before, so it's possible that there are a few still somewhere in the dense cloud forests at the top of Kauai, but at this point it seems pretty unlikely. And the Kauai O'o and all the other O'o's seem to be lost to history. So what can we learn from the plight of the O'o beyond the obvious message of conservation? Well, in 2016 our world is smaller than ever before. Nowhere is truly isolated, and that's great in many ways, but it can also destroy the things that make each little corner of our world unique. And the ancient kings of Hawaii wore the feathers of a bird in their robes that were found nowhere else in the world. And today, Hawaii has no kings, and there are no more O'O's. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe, and remember to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever your podcast vehicle of choice is. You can send us questions or suggestions at extinctionfilespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Next time on the Extinction Files, we'll tell the story of a very different animal in a very different place. uh, The Stellar's Sea Cow. Until then, stay curious. I'm Dan Jocelyn.